welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 3 of DDG Pod. And at the time of this recording, our previous two episodes were enjoyed by listeners in over 30 different countries and across five continents. Thank you again to all who listened. The show is growing at an unexpected rate, and so we plan to keep bringing you content that will keep you downloading episodes, recommending us to others, and most importantly, rolling more dice. In the introduction to our first episode, we made mention of OSR role-playing games, an acronym meaning either Old School Revival or Old School Renaissance, and describing games that, to varying degrees, are based on earlier versions of the world's first role-playing game, Dungeons & Dragons. These games often draw inspiration from the editions written by Gary Gygax and others, but introduce newer, more modern, and or streamlined mechanics to create games offering different aesthetics and styles of gameplay. Some of these games, however, referred to as retro clones, are faithful reproductions of earlier rule sets to make past versions of D&D available again. In this episode, we welcome to the guild a designer who helped initiate the old school revival by resurrecting out-of-print rule sets of the world's most popular tabletop role-playing game to create some of the first retro clone RPGs. So without further ado, let's get on with our main event. Today, on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered an OSR lore master, a true tabletop archaeologist who has led not one, but two successful expeditions to retrieve precious gold from the out-of-print temples of role-playing past, Matt Finch. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you this evening? I'm doing great. How are you, Stephen? I'm doing well. And where is the OSR archive that you are calling from? Well, I'm calling in from Cottonwood, Arizona. It's a small town, and it's one of those places where it's near to another place, and it's and that's near to another place. We're near Sedona, Arizona, which most people have probably heard of. Okay, absolutely. Is that where you're from originally? No, no, I'm from Houston, Texas originally. Okay. What uh, brought you out to Arizona? What brings you out westward? Pretty much random walk uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, but uh, I ended up here. I, I happen to live in the same apartment complex as Zach Glazer, who is the Frog God Games chief operating officer. I'm the creative director for Frog God, and I was looking for a place. He had a place open, so we decided, you know, well, you know, we'll save a lot of time being able to walk next door and bang on the door about why aren't you answering your email. All right, but you're enjoying it out there? Yeah, it's pretty good. It gets a little hot in the summer, and it gets a little colder in the winter than I'm used to it's just a wider range on the temperatures but it's, it's a pretty good place i like it it gets hotter than texas where you're from in terms of the absolute temperature yeah it gets up to about 110 here texas pretty much tops out at about you know 106 but it's <laughs> survivable here because what they say about you know it's not the heat it's the humidity that's actually kind of true so houston is uh can be just as brutal uh, I'm calling you from New England, but I'm I'm from Wisconsin originally. Oh, so these numbers don't mean anything to you when you talk about temperature over 100. <laughs> it just means I can't I can't do it. 
<laughs> difference between 106 and 110 nope i desert heat uh not not for me but you uh you you grew up in texas originally you said yep so i guess when and how did you start role playing well let's see i think it was about 1978 uh in 77 i was pretty young at that point but what i was doing was napoleonic wargaming a little bit here and there so i was in the model stores that used to exist at that point in time where you could buy model rockets model trains uh, model kits and that that's the kind of place that was usually selling the Dungeons and Dragons stuff and that's also where you got the Napoleonic miniatures and so I was you know looking at miniatures you know when my mom would drop me off when she was shopping to go look through stuff like that and started running across the Dungeons and Dragons books and then a friend of mine got his hands on one of the Holmes basic sets in which must have been about 1978 I think and it was that wasn't something I had seen in the stores I had seen the advanced D&D books out there and so I hadn't quite realized that there was a game in a box. And so since, you know, when you're like 10 or however old I was then, you don't quite realize that you can have a game in books. It's got to be in a box. And so I hadn't really understood what it was I was looking at. it, paged through the monster manual and stuff like that. And then when he had this Holmes Blue Box set, you know, then we looked at it, figured out how to play, sat down and played it, played it for, you know, probably 10 hours, 12 hours straight, like a lot of us did. And then the very next day I went out and got a copy of the advanced one because we'd already played up through third level characters doing it and looked through the whole thing so that was that was sort of the start to it was it began with i was i was in the area because of napoleonic wargaming and then we ran across the box and then from there started playing so 78 okay so you started with the Holmes box and moved on to advanced D&D the next day it sounds like yeah pretty much it was the next day or the day after that and then you also needed over time to get hold of a copy of the OD&D box set because at that time they had not come out with the dungeon master's guide yet they just had the player's handbook and they had the monster manual and so for getting the saving throws and some of the other information for the game it, they, it wasn't covered in the blue book because that only went up through levels one through three and it wasn't in the player's handbook or the monster manual because it was planned to be in the dungeon master's guide so there was some additional stuff so you ended up playing multiple editions and versions all at once and just sort of cramming it all together and making it work okay interesting so you then ended up playing D&D for quite a while when did you move on to other games or was it D&D for pretty much the entirety of your gaming history well it was D&D it was just D&D for a long time except that as we were reading the dragon magazine there were some other things that came in that were not rpgs like we played panzer blitz and we played awful green things from outer space and things like that but in terms of role-playing games i think the next one that we started playing was call of cthulhu but i don't really remember what year that was I, it was after a while because i think it was the third edition or third printing on that one i don't remember Exactly. But Call of Cthulhu was next. Uh, oh, oh, well, no, I'm wrong. A Traveler. We, we played Traveler fairly quickly after starting D&D. We gave Traveler a try. But our particular group, for one thing, we weren't very good at running a game. So we didn't have a good <laughs> game master for that. I think that running a science fiction game is a lot harder than running a fantasy game. I think you have got much more to think about, much more difficult stuff to portray, which is a little weird given that it's, you know, seems like it would be closer in time or closer in reality, especially Traveler, given that it's fairly hard science. But nonetheless, I always say I think I'm pretty good as a fantasy DM, but I'm not particularly good as a science fiction one. Okay. And so were you DMing a lot or you said that you didn't have a very good DM? Uh, was there 
somebody in particular that was running the group most of the time or did you guys kind of trade off no, well we did trade off usually i was the gm for that but it turned out that none of us was very good i think at, at running traveler and is that because of differences in the system itself or because sci-fi doesn't have as many agreed upon tropes why do you think that might be exactly I think it was because it doesn't have as many agreed upon tropes. I mean, the, when you read the old classic traveler rule books, you get the sense that the goal of it is to end up owning a ship. And so you end up sort of doing the commercial side of it. Whereas in actuality, I think most of the good traveler campaigns that I've heard of have tended to sort of stick with the gritty going from place to place, doing things, you know, in a, a rented ship, or maybe it's one that you're just trying to make the payments on. But we were kind of looking to for a, a more epic finish or end game to it the way that D&D has where you get your castle. So, I mean, it, it may just have been, you know, that the, the implicit guidance that was given in the game didn't register for 11-year-olds as well as D&D got the idea across about how the, how the game worked. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So Call of Cthulhu, though, was the next game after that. And that did that work better for you? Or did you stick with fantasy mostly there on out? Well, I'm always, I'm much, much more a fantasy junkie. But, you know, I, I think the Call of Cthulhu, it worked better in terms of running adventures and keeping it fun and having, you know, good gaming sessions and so on. But it was never the go-to game. I mean, D&D was always the go-to game in our groups. Okay. So did you have any favorite D&D characters that you remember playing or any favorite campaigns? that you ran? Well, my I guess one of my favorite characters was one of the very early ones I played, which was, again, back before anybody really understood anything about game balance or anything like that. And so he was like a 30th level magic user named Skyrask. I'm usually the magic user, and, and even worse than that, I'm usually the magic user who's pushing buttons and pulling levers and things like that that everybody wants to kill. I'm not the best player in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that guy. Which is why I don't play all that much. I'm usually the DM, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. But did you end up playing Skyrask quite often? Oh, yeah. I mean, that this was in this was in middle school, so I guess it was about 6th or 7th? Somewhere in the 6th, 7th, 8th grade range. And everyone played, you know, in the cafeteria. You passed notes when you were in class about what you were doing. We were playing pretty much nonstop for, you know, a long, long time. Then, you know, go home and stay up all night, eat pizza until, you know, no one's awake anymore. And then you wake up at, you know, noon the next day and start all over again. Okay, so when you say you were passing notes in class, was that just updates on what was happening in the campaign, or were you actually playing by note? I was actually playing by note. <laughs> <laughs> so, a play-by-post, but in school. But in, it, but in class, in school, yeah. Guilty. <laughs> okay, so you said that you ended up GMing most of the time. Were there any campaigns that you remember that you enjoyed running in particular? Well, we started, originally, we weren't even playing in any sort of a campaign. It was just that people had characters and somebody was DMing and they would have an adventure, which was, you know, usually a, a mega dungeon type of thing that they had designed. And it was very much, you know, whoever's playing is in the game kind of thing. We started, when the Greyhawk campaign came out, we started playing in Greyhawk and had a group that played for, I don't know, a year, two years in Greyhawk and very fond memories of that one. And then I think the next long running campaign that we did was probably one, let me see, it was in college. 
And this is a lot of the same people in this. We did one where where everyone was playing characters that were they were evilly aligned, but it wasn't your evil sort of campaign. It was just that the good characters who were the opponents were basically unbelievably self-righteous and horrible and virtually fascistic in the way that they were trying to impose good. And so it kind of turned our evil characters into being the sort of scrappy rebellion more than anything else. That was a fun one. Then I did one in about 94 that was a, very heavily based on sort of Jack Vance and Celtic and Troubadour poems that I'd run across in college. I took a class on Troubadour poetry. Yeah, I mean, there have been several. Okay, excellent. And so you said it was most of the same guys when you were in college. So most of the guys you were gaming with in middle school and high school, did you end up going to college with them? No, it was it was more people coming together. Just I went to college on the East Coast and my, my best friend that I grew up with, and we've known each other since we were five, his parents had gotten divorced and they had moved out to Philadelphia or he and his mom had moved out to Philadelphia. And so when I moved out to the East Coast for college, I was going to college in Boston. He was going to Vassar. And so it was a train ride. And the reason that I mentioned that particular campaign was just because he spent one summer rooming with me in Boston and he had a job and I had a job, uh, but we were rooming together. So it was, it wasn't so much that the particular group of people migrated from one place to the, to another. It was just that we were close enough to get together and still game. Oh, excellent. Okay. And so then when did you take the gaming to game designing? Well, I mean, officially that was probably in 2006, late 2005, 2006. And it wasn't really so much a game design decision as it was that the open game license was out there for for third edition. And there were a lot of people trying to figure out how to publish things for older editions, you know, mainly advanced D&D, first edition. And I had the idea, been to law school, you know, in the interim, and I thought I saw a way to do that, which was by basically rewriting the non-copyrightable rules of first edition and also including material from the open game license that Wizards of the Coast had done for the D20 system and thereby legally creating something that people could use as a system reference document that would allow them to publish material for first edition Dungeons and Dragons. And so it wasn't really so much game design as it was a legal document, if you will, that was written like a game, which we expected publishers to use, but didn't really expect that people would pick up and play. And this was Osric, which uh, Stuart Marshall and I published in 2006. But then the response to that, uh, you know, like I said, we had expected that there might be a couple hundred people who might use it because there were forums for, you know, people who were doing first edition advanced D&D stuff. We thought there might be, you know, a hundred or so people who, who would use that. And it turned out when we put it up, it was downloaded with 50,000 unique downloads in the first 24 hours instead of the hundred or so that we'd expected over the whole course of time. So that was a real shock. And that was sort of what started the whole retro clone concept. At that point, there was only one other person who was working on something similar, a guy named Chris Gonnerman, whose basic fantasy role-playing game is out there. And he was also focusing on getting old school stuff out through the open game license, but he was hewing sort of more closely to the system reference document and the open game license. Whereas what Stuart and I were trying to do with Osric was focusing a little bit more on the rules are not copyrightable region 
of it and to actually duplicate the exact rule set that was there as closely as we legally could without putting in anything that was modernized or anything that was a house rule that we did. So the two sort of groups, you know, Chris Gonnermans and me and Stuart were working at the same time and it, they came out almost simultaneously. I think Chris came out with a draft of his game, Basic Fantasy Role-Playing Game, and we came out uh, with Osric like the next week. And then he came out with his final version of that, a couple of, of his game, a couple of weeks later. So, I mean, we're talking literally within the same month, these two parallel projects both came out into the world for people to use. Would Labyrinthoid have cropped up around that time too? Or was that, do you think that was inspired by one of your two works or both of your works? Oh, Labyrinth Lord was inspired by it. Labyrinth Lord came out about a year later and that was, and it was the first, because the thing is there are, there are several old school rule sets. And so, you know, we had done first edition and I have forgotten whether Chris's focused more on basic expert or whether it was on Beck me, but it was one of the basic sets was the one that he used as, as his. And then Daniel, what Daniel did was sort of took the, you know, I was talking about whether you were hewing more toward the open game license approach or whether you were hewing more toward the rules are not copyrightable approach. Daniel was like Osric. He was trying to duplicate as closely as possible the rules of basic expert D&D. And that was the first version of Labyrinth Lord that came out. That was in 2007. And then using that as a core, he also created some variants. There was one where there's a supplement to it that allows you to be playing basically first edition D&D only using the BX rules as the base. And then there was there's another one that looked backward to the original D&D game set. But when you're looking right at Labyrinth Lord, the original rule rule set. That's basically, he was doing the same thing for basing an expert that Stuart and I had done for first edition D&D, which was to try and get as closely as possible to the original rule set as you could legally. And this was important at the time because back then those PDFs were not legally available anywhere. And so, and everyone knew that eventually the supply of the books was going to drop out, but you could not just go to drive through RPG and get yourself a copy of the old rule. So this, that was, that was, that was Daniel and Labyrinth Lord. Yeah, it was, it was, it's the same, the same basic project going on there only with a, a different one of the old school rule sets and, and people did many more of them i mean the year after that was when i came out with the first iteration of swords and wizardry for the original box set rules and so and people have done people have done back me people have worked on second edition there are several of these that have been done did, were you working off of your original copy then that you bought back when you were a kid had you just held on to it the whole time the books oh yeah but i had i mean by then i had four or five because the you know there there was already an upsurge in interest in playing the the out-of-print rules was sort of centered around a forum called Dragon's Foot and another forum called Knights and Knaves. And there are a couple more forums. Those were probably the larger ones. And Castles and Crusades had already come out. I mean, Castles and Crusades was what, 19... I forget when it was the Castles and Crusades. But, you know, again, the, you know, Castles and Crusades was an attempt sort of more along the Chris Gonnerman sort of line of sticking fairly closely within the OGL. They, they were more so than Chris was doing even. And so there were a lot of people who felt like, you know, okay, yeah, this kind of feels like advanced D&D, but I could also be playing advanced D&D. No knock on Castles and Crusades. I mean, it's a great game. It's just this is the way that people are looking at it, you know, in, in terms of, of, of on the forums and so on and so forth. And so that, and in fact, it was disagreements between those two fan bases was part of the reason that there was added interest in Osric. And I won't go into all the politics. Anybody who's ever, <laughs> you know, been on any sort of fan thing will understand, you know, there are factions, there are wars, all of this kind of stuff is going on. And I've forgotten where it was I was starting. I guess I was just talking about retro clones in general. So Right. So as 
far as the desire to uh, create what is essentially the first, you know, the first retro clone, uh, had you been playing first edition the whole time or did you, did you dabble in third and not find what you were looking for? Uh, what was sort of the, the inspiration there? I followed rule sets as they came out. So I played first edition, second edition, third edition. And then with third edition was where I suddenly realized that the, the rules were not letting me play to my strengths as a DM. And this was something that I just hadn't even thought that that was a possibility. But uh, I, I finally did realize, and I was very late to the game in, in figuring this out. But I, at that point, I did realize, you know, okay, there, there are two different game styles here that are going on. And this new third edition rule set is breaking from the type of rules that I work better with. And so from that point, which was in 2004, and that I think is when Castles and Crusades came out. In 2004, I, and so I started looking around for, you know, okay, well, what else is out there? Because it's somehow, and again, you know, I was just dumb. It didn't occur to me right at that point, go back to an old out-of-print rule set. You got to play, a, you know, set of rules that are in print, right? So and that was when I got into Castles and Crusades. And that's also when I got into all of the forums and the wars and so on and so forth. And then from Castles and Crusades, that, so I was... I I had played Castles and Crusades, and then I went back to first edition D&D, and then that was the point at which I started writing Osric. So I followed rules. I never never even occurred to me that you could stop and just say, you know, hey, I like this one that I'm playing. I'm not going to move on. Okay. You're collaborating on Osric. Was that one of your fellow players, or is that somebody that you had met through one of these forums? Oh, no. Stuart Marshall is, he's in Britain. I met him through one of the forums. Excellent guy. And he, so he and I were, we were both admins on the Knights and Knaves forum and just started talking talking, you know, in the in the private channels about, you know, hey, we could do this, hey, we could do that. And I came up with a draft of it. And eventually Stuart took it over. I think my first draft of it was about 76,000 words. And then I sort of chickened out on the whole, you know, because everyone, we really thought Wizards of the Coast was going to sue us for putting this out. Uh, you know, now in <laughs> retrospect, that looks a little silly, but that was re- everyone believed that we were going to get sued at the time. So I was like, hey, I can't do this. And he was like, well, okay, you know, let me take it. And I'll edit it up and I'll put it out, you know, because I'm in Britain where it's a lot more difficult to sue somebody. Uh, and so that's the reason that I'm listed as the initial author on Osric rather than being the author or the editor or anything like that. Interesting. So, so you had to publish it in, in Britain originally, or at least post it uh, from Britain so that you couldn't get sued. And you never got any sort of negative legal attention, it sounds like at all, right? Well, we did. We got contacted by D&D's brand manager at the time, whose name I may get wrong. I think it was Ronald Redmond something like that and he he didn't play a cease and desist or anything like that he did say you know hey can you take this down and talk about it and Stuart's response was basically no it's it's up there it's going to stay and then it, there was some discussion back and forth about the licensing and then the discussion just ceased so okay so at some point they decided that they'd be fine and they could just let the sort of retro cloning occur yeah I think that the contact was more you know they probably had you know a whole lot of people contact them and say hey look at what's going on because that happens in the industry if a pirate puts something up people contact you and let you know you know so and like i said you know everyone thought we were going to get sued so i'm sure that they had a bunch of people talk to them and they were just you know playing for a little bit of time to think about it and i'm sure that their lawyers looked at it and said you know no this is basically clean it's you know it may it may not be 
be what they wanted, but it was something that the door had been opened for that some years before when they initially came out with the open game license. You know, somebody with 2020 hindsight could have predicted that something like this would come up and it was it's four square in terms of what you can do within the open game license. So I don't mean to sound like they were dicks about it because they weren't. I think, you know, what they were just doing was, you know, trying to buy a little time to think <laughs> about it and figure out, you know, what exactly to do. And then once, you know, probably once they had talked to their lawyer and once they'd had a chance to, you know, sit and chat about, is this something that we care about? I think the answer was, you know, no, it's not something that's going to cause us, you know, any kind of harm or anything like that. So Okay. And so back to the, the development of Osric, you said that the current editions weren't allowing you to play to your strengths as a DM. Do you have any particular examples of to expound on that? I can actually remember the encounter where it happened. There's somebody had to jump onto, somebody wanted to jump onto the back of a dire lion and then up in the air to try and grab a wraith that was in the air or something like that. And we started doing it and I was just thinking, okay, so the, we've got this modifier and that modifier and what's the die roll? And it suddenly just became clear to me all of a sudden that the way I had been playing before, that would have been just something where I said, you know, okay, jump on the back of the lion. I might do a, a to hit roll to see whether you, you know, landed well or badly, but the nitty gritty procedure of it wasn't all that terribly important. And I realized that the rule sets had been building in, you know, these, these nitty gritty resolution dynamics for things that to my mind as a DM, I like to hand wave away. And so it was, it was the hardwiring mainly of, of skills and feats and things like that, which were much more prominent in third edition than they are in fifth edition. So, you know, somebody who, who started on fifth edition probably doesn't understand exactly how granular third edition was, but it was, it was sort of the pinnacle. I mean, Pathfinder got more granular even than that, but from the official D&D products, I, I think that third edition was probably the most granular of all of them. And I just realized that wasn't the way I played and it suddenly occurred to me, okay, so there, there are actually two styles of play here. There's the one in which you're focusing more on on, you know, feats and skills, and there's a lot that's embedded in the character sheet, as opposed to the older school style, where you know it tends to be more open-ended rules in in terms of things. They're they're, they're going to be you know much more vague, but there's a, sometimes in a game there's a reason for for vagueness, which is that it allows it to just make a ruling and move on, rather than stop and try and figure out what exactly is the rule. So that's what I would say was the the problem with that. You know, for me, I think everybody has different subjective points where they react differently to a game. But for me, that one particular combat for some reason was the light bulb that went off. Excellent. Okay. So you decided to look back and see how you could develop a clean, perfectly legal version of the original 1E rule set. And you put that out. So when I see Osric, I see PDFs for it on DriveThruRPG and things like that. Uh, is that the same game that you designed or is somebody else taking that or is that still your, your British colleague? Well, the other part of that formula was that we allowed people to publish something and say that it was for Osric. So there are lots and lots of people who are publishing things for Osric. Because if, if we had tried to lock up the use of that name, then we would have been right back at square one where somebody controls the rules. And the objective was to not have somebody who is controlling the rules. It was just to have the system out there for anybody who wanted to play and anybody who wanted to publish something, you know, could go ahead and call it Osric, assuming that it was actually compatible. That was really the only thing that we put as a requirement for calling your thing Osric was that it, 
it did have to be you know based on Osric. It couldn't just be something else entirely. So there are many, many people who have published things for Osric, very different publishers. Okay. From Osric, then, you said it wasn't that long after you went into Swords and Wizardry, it sounds like, right? It was a few years. Right. And the first thing I did was swear I was never going to ever try and do something like that again because of the amount of effort that's involved with it. And then within a year, I was. And part of the reason for that was that I, I was sort of migrating around rule sets myself. And so, you know, began playing OD&D rather than first edition, partly because I was sick of first edition because I had just rewritten the entire you know rule set for it. You can get real sick of something when you do that. So, <laughs> But then also a guy named Jerry Mapes, who was the person who founded the Knights and Knaves Forum, he was an, an original D&D player and had asked, you know, when is it that you're going to do one of these for, for original D&D? And, you know, my initial answer, of course, was, you know, never, ever doing it again. But then his health started to fail. He really wanted me to take a stab at it. So I decided to go ahead and do that. And so that's how the project got started. And then it, from there, it, it picked up and went in different directions, you know, especially once I joined Frog God Games and had, you know, sort of settled more into the role of being a publisher than being somebody who was putting out rule sets for anybody to use. And so that meant, you know, sort of a more formalized, you know, here is a rule book, it is a product, but, you know, it's got the same aspect to it that Osric does that anybody who wants to publish something and call it Swords and Wizardry can do that as long as it bears, you know, as long as it is actually based on Swords and Wizardry. So that's uh, that's how I migrated over to original D&D. That was uh, in um, 2008, I guess. So it came out about two years after Osric. And would fourth edition have been out by then, or was that right around the corner? I think it was right around the corner. The exact time sequence escapes me, but fourth, when fourth edition came out, that was a very big boost to the entire old school Renaissance community because I think a lot of people who had been playing third edition, I, I think what happens is once your favorite rule set goes out of print for the and it's the first time that's ever happened to you, you sort of stop, you take stock, and you realize, you know what? I could play anything. And I think that a lot of people, you know, then, you know, even though they might have played second edition, but they would tend to go back to original D&D or to first edition for the most part. But when fourth edition came out, because it was so unpopular, because they really botched the release of that, I think a lot of people decided that it was, in their mind, it was okay to start playing an out-of-print game or one that was, you know, in print, but based on an out-of-print game. It's a psychological thing. It's kind of weird. You know, it's kind of, like I said, you know, my, it had never occurred to me to play an out-of-print game, you know, until quite, you know, very, very, very late in the process, but people just kind of have that in their heads. And when you realize, you know, that you can actually keep playing something that's not in print, it's a little bit of a, a revelation, I think, the first time that it strikes you. Yeah, I think, I mean, I came in on third edition and I think when fourth edition came out, we we dabbled in it and ultimately decided that, no, we we're just going to keep doing what we were doing and go back to third edition. And so it was, it, then it was a real hard sell to get me onto fifth when somebody, when one of my friends finally, you know, insisted that we try fifth, that it was okay again and we, we could give it a shot. Yeah. Come, come back in the water's okay again <laughs> yeah and i mean if, as you point out like it, it's out of print but you have all the materials and everything it doesn't you know you, you still have just as much potential as you had before yeah i got a feeling that younger gamers are less resistant or, or they're less likely to fall into that mental trap you know that i must be playing what's in print just because the you know on the internet everything always stays the internet is forever and i think that you know the younger generations have more of this idea that things survive but you know when you started playing in the 70s, you know, when something went out of print, it meant 
that it was gone and you couldn't go to a bookstore and you couldn't get it and there was no way of downloading it anywhere because downloading hadn't been invented yet. So I think that the younger generation of gamers is probably a lot more flexible in kind of in, in terms of that type of idea. You know, what to me was a revelation is probably to someone, you know, who's a millennial, they're probably like, why the hell was that a revelation? That should have been obvious to you from the moment one, but it's not. I suppose I would have guessed the opposite, but you're probably you're right about that, I would assume. So because there's a lot of people I know that came in on, on fifth edition and I guess fifth edition hasn't been discontinued yet, but there's a lot of people that came in on fifth and, and aren't are really resistant to trying anything else or came back for fifth and are resistant to trying anything else. I, I, I find so, but you're right. It, I guess with younger generations, you'd still have access to it somewhere. They know, Yeah. I mean, if you're younger, you know that you're always going to be able to find a community that's doing the same thing you are somewhere out there. They'll be there. But you know, when you're relying on, you know, a yellow pages and a, and a telephone, that's not so much the case. So I think, we've, you know, that's the, the internet's probably created some people who are a little bit more flexible in terms of the way they think about, you know, gaming choices. So was there a reticence then transitioning from like first to second or second to third that you felt at all? No, I, you know, I really didn't. It just seemed like, you know, okay, here's the new thing. Let's open the books and learn the new thing. All right. And that worked for a few editions. And then at some point that you decided that you had to, you had to go back to what you knew from before. Yeah. I mean, it worked for, it worked for second edition and it worked for third edition, except that it didn't stick. Third edition was the one, you know, so I really only went through that exercise twice. And the second time it didn't, it didn't stay, but. Okay. So as far as, as swords and wizardry, so you'd, you'd already done uh, Osric with first edition swords and wizardry was OD and D you said in inspired largely, right? Yep. Okay. And so was there, were there any other games that factored in? There's uh, Was there any third edition OGL that made its way into Swords and Wizardry? Well, the OGL is is wrapped into pretty much all of the retro clones simply because it's the it's a legal safe harbor and it gives you the ability to use a lot of terms and words. But the way that you generate it is by, you know, looking at the original rules, you know, rewording things and then checking to make sure that it doesn't contain anything that is copyrightable from the original rule set. So for example, you have to watch out for table formatting, for example, because table formatting is something that you can copyright. There's a long, long, long discussion about what the legal side of creating a retro clone is. But the way that Swords and Wizardry started out was that the original, with OD&D, you have the original box set, which was a couple of books, and then they came out with supplements after that. And so you've got people who play White Box, which is simply and only the books that were in the original set. And then the first version of Swords and Wizardry that I wrote, which was called the core rule book that was basically just my favorite combination of the books so that was the white box the original books plus the Greyhawk supplement which is where you get a big sea change in D&D because they start using the various different numbered dice for a lot more things rather than D6s so for example monsters suddenly have an eight-sided hit die instead of a six-sided hit die different character classes have different hit dice hit die types and so that there was this is that one and then after that the swords and wizardry complete which is really kind of now the, the flagship version of Swords and Wizardry. That's when people talk about Swords and Wizardry, they're pretty much talking about the complete. And that was all of the books that were published for original D&D. Plus it contains some stuff that came out in the Strategic Review and the Dragon magazines to the extent that that was usable. So for example, the Ranger comes from an issue of Strategic Review and it was all written you know, from the original stuff. And so you end up with something that's got a scope very much like advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but different right at that point. It's just no, a lot of people didn't quite realize it because 
because it was in so many different books and magazines and so forth, and it was never codified into a single book, that it really did pretty much meet the same scope as AD&D, and it was simply a different game in terms of the way that it played. So so in, in terms of you know which, what are the components to it, the initial draft or initial version of it was just based on the three original books plus the Greyhawk supplement, but now pretty much Swords and Wizardry is all of original D&D. Okay, so it's all of original D&D, and as far as the, the publication history with it, when you got to that, uh, the complete version, were you with, you were with Frog God Games at that point, right? Yeah, that was the thing that caused me to sit down and go ahead and bring all of it into one place was to do a thing for, for Frog God. So that I started on that sometime in, I guess, 2010. Okay. So you said it's like the original, but Collected becomes almost a different game. What sort of, and you don't have to go into real granular detail, but what sort of facets would today's average gamer find familiar and what would be notably different? Well, I think they'd find an awful lot of it familiar. The distinctions between it are things like, you know, uh, original Dungeons and Dragons doesn't permit you to have uh, clerics that are of chaotic alignment, and it only has the three alignment points of law, neutrality, and chaos, rather than bringing good and evil into it for the nine-point alignment axis that came in with Advanced D&D. But, you know, the thing is that the core concepts of the game are all in place very, very early on. You recognize basically what's going on with almost everything. You know, so when people are sitting down at a, to a convention game playing Swords and Wizardry, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much like, okay, if you've played any version of D&D, you're going to get 90% of what's going on here. And the 10% that you're not getting is unimportant because it's probably going to be specific rules, resolutions, and things that you're used to that simply don't exist in, in original D&D. That's just something where we make, where we make a ruling about what's going to happen rather than looking at a rule book. Okay. Are there any notable innovations or is everything pretty much pieced together from different versions of OD&D? Well, I mean, I tried to avoid innovations because that wasn't my task in what I was trying to do. I was really trying to create a version of original Dungeons and Dragons. And I definitely wanted it, you know, for one thing, you know, original Dungeons and Dragons had never been put together into any one book. So just putting it all into one place had a qualitative as well as a quantitative effect on how it reads. And I wanted it to be more organized because OD&D was terribly disorganized because of the way, you know, the way it was. So it was the first one that anyone had ever written. So they had you know, they had to make up the organization of it as they went along. And the best way of presenting an RPG has been honed now considerably over the decades. I wanted it to, I wanted to try and get across the fact that house ruling is okay by giving a sort of core set of, you know, this is the default, but here are the various options for doing something differently. And here are the effects of doing it that way, which I, I think the area where that's the most done is in the initiative system, because there was no official initiative system when the, the game first came out. And there are some wildly different ways of altering tactically the way the game plays, depending on how you do initiative. So I, I had that objective to, to make it clear that, you know, we're making it easy to learn the game by telling you the rules, but house ruling is part of this game. It is part of the game to make up some of your own rules, make up your own resolution methods. And that was something that I think that people who were starting to play in third edition, that was something that was kind of being hidden from those brand new gamers. The fact that that was something that worked you know, to just be like, hey, let's do it this way. So that was one of the objectives in there. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was more presentation and learnability and getting across some of the things that made the pre-third edition editions unique from third edition 
and forward. Okay. And so on the example of initiative, because you said there was no standardized initiative, you approach that in this book by including several different types of initiative, it looks like, right? Yes. Okay. And so your goal in sort of recreating and representing the original rules was if you came to a crossroads like that, Instead of deciding yourself, this is how the game should be played, you included every, all of the viable options for the DM to, or, or group in general, to choose what they were looking for and what they felt would play best. What I tried to do was avoid inserting myself into the process and, and playing like I was the author, because you know I wasn't. The author of the game is Gary Gygax. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that some of the options that were tried were better or worse. For example, the initiative system that original Dungeons & Dragons came out with in one of the later supplements called Eldritch Wizardry was really not a very good system. It wasn't very playable. It was very, very clunky and slow. And so I really downplayed that as one of the options. But for example, the initiative system from the Holmes Basic set uh, happens to be, you know, very good and workable. And so, you know, I highlighted that. Mainly, I was just taking examples of the way that various people did things, which ones of these were, you know, most different and most playable and putting those out with a description of, you know, how and why you might choose to do it that way because you know even even in a very very freeform system like swords and wizardry you're going to have some groups that are you know more tactical or less tactical in combat you know they they enjoy you know having lots of tactical options as opposed to doing something that's more just telling a, a story with a few die rolls and so you know there are ways of making it more of a, you know more of a tactical war game or making it more of one that's you know sim- cinematic and just guided by you know d20 rolls and damage rolls do you have a personal preference as far as that's concerned um no, not really. I mean, I, I definitely like to have some tactical rules in there. I mean, you know, what happens if I want to, you know, pull out a front rank fighter and take his place? You know, what are the modifiers going to be so that I can decide whether that's a good idea? I don't think I'm super big on uh, on the tactical stuff. Okay. And so I, I believe the first option that's presented in the book, and I could be wrong about this, is the, the role of a D6 mm-hmm. for initiative and whoever rolls higher, it's either the party or the, the monsters that go first. Is that right? Yep, and then you just go. I think that's the default, and then there were there's other things like you know having everybody you know go in dexterity order, uh, you know rolling the dexterity for the monsters and putting them in there in the rotation. Those are the two I like the best. And the the first one with the the roll of a d6, did that come from an earlier version of D and D, or is that an example of something that the house really decided to include? I don't remember whether that was something that was. I don't think that was ever officially in any rules anywhere. It's just that that happened to be the way that a lot of people did it because the see the thing was that they said in the original D&D books, they said, look at the chainmail rule book for the initiative sequence. And Gary Gygax was a really good at cross-selling his products, and that would get people to go and buy chainmail. But the fact of the matter is the chainmail initiative system just doesn't work with D&D. And so a lot of people were like, well, what do you do? And so I you know, imagine that a lot of people were like, well, roll a die, you know, see who goes highest, and then you go. Because that was the system in lots and lots of war games at the time. Many, many, many people played it that way. And so that's what I put in as the default. Again, part because it's simple, it's simple and it's playable. And then you can add on more complexity if you want to. So it's not an official rule, but it's how a lot of players had just had just been playing anyway yeah. until that point. Yeah. Okay. Were there any other sort of folk rules that made their way into the, the game that you can recall like that? Um, let me think. Not off the top of my head, but 
I'm pretty sure that there are some things in there that came from common usage. I mean, because at the same time I was doing this, I mean, I was talking to a lot of people because although I played during that era, that was, you know, me in middle school. And so I talked to some of the people who had actually been adults at the time that that was going on. You know, I talked with Tim Kask and Dennis Sestere, you know, people at conventions. And when I had a question, I would be like, you know, hey, what did you, you know, how did you guys, you know, handle this particular kind of situation? And, you know, you you tended to get a a sense for how it was that that the broader community was doing things. Okay. Question of a, about a specific one. Does advantage, disadvantage, does that factor into swords and wizardry at all? No. Okay. No, that's a that's a straight up, you know, I'm sure it, it appeared in some ways or other in, in other games, but that's a fifth edition innovation in terms of Dungeons and Dragons coming into it. I mean, the way that you would do it, advantage, disadvantage was, you might say the rock is really slippery. So when you try and climb it, you know, you're going to have a, a minus one on a roll and, you know, you'd make up what the roll was because even the skill stuff didn't come in until second edition. This idea of rolling underneath your ability score was something that came in pretty much in in second edition. But, you know, the idea was there, but it was more modifiers to dice rolls than a unique, elegant, uniform way of addressing that concept. That's something that came in with fifth edition. See, and that was my perception too. I hadn't encountered advantage, disadvantage until fifth edition. And and the simplicity of it, I thought was was genius, but I was talking to Christian Marstam who designed White Hack, and he referred to that as being an old trick that appears in White Hack before it was in 5th edition. He said he did not originate that. That had come from common usage, so I had never encountered anybody that played that way before 5th edition. It's not something that I had seen before then, but there's very little that's brand new when you're talking about games played with dice or cards. You know, someone's probably done it before, you know, over the thousands of years people have been playing card and, and dice games. So I would not be surprised at all to learn that that wasn't something that was dreamed up brand new. Okay. All right. And so one thing that stuck out to me, and I'm not sure if this is something from older, I mean, it must be something from older editions, but the percent chances that you see with assassins and thieves in their in their skill tables, and also with some magic effects, mm-hmm. you said that didn't show up till second edition? No, no, no. The, the percentage chances and things appeared in first edition. What I was saying that didn't show up until second edition was the idea that if you're going to try some kind of difficult task, whether it's riding a, a horse that's bucking or something like that, the idea in second edition, and it showed up very slightly in first edition, but it wasn't an overall concept. The idea in second edition was that you would look at your, the, the DM would say, okay, well, that's going to be a dexterity type of thing. So what is your dexterity score? Now roll a d20. And if the result is equal to or less than your score, then you have succeeded in it. You know, that's basically out the window when you hit third edition, because in third edition, the game designers definitely wanted to make sure that everything, that you wanted a high roll on everything in order to be success, that it was counterintuitive to have sometimes you want to roll low, sometimes you want to roll high. So that went out with third edition. Right. And that's how I had learned to play. So when, you know, you pick up something like GURPS or anything else that was popular at the time that I started and it's it's roll under, that was confusing for somebody that that started on third. Sure. Absolutely. Because they, they they completely wrote, you know, and that, that makes sense. I mean, the, the that's also the thing with the ascending and the descending armor class. It used to be that in second edition and before, the lower your armor class was, the harder you were to hit. And so they reversed that in third edition to where your armor class, the higher your armor class was, the harder you were to hit, which is intuitive. Mm-hmm. But you know, the, the older systems were not so much focused on the elegance of the system. They were more focused on, you know, just it's not going to make a difference to the people whether they're rolling a percentage dice for climbing walls, a six-sided dice for whether they can hear noise, you know, or a 20-sided die to 
a hit because they just, you know, sort of went with what worked. But, you know, I'm I, and in general, I'm not a big fan of the idea that elegance is super important in a game. I think it's fine to have a game that has, you know, weird, unrelated subcomponents and, you know, wonky dice rolls and so on. And so on. I think that adds character to the game. I think elegance is overrated. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that people do try and work in. Are you a big fan of Dungeon Crawl Classics then? <laughs> because they've got even even more strange dice. Yes. Yeah. I, I haven't played it much. I played in one of the funnels, which if you haven't played DCC, for the people who are listening, that's where you start with multiple uh, zero level characters. And then you, just you figure out which one's going to end up being your character by who survives. But I've I, so I've played in one of those. And that's what they do is convention events a lot of the time. So I've played in one of those, but I haven't really played full bore DCC with the, the actual character level characters characters yeah i've i've only dabbled as well i haven't yeah the sort of the the amount of you know goofy dice that you need for that game is is uh, rather rather amusing yeah well i mean i'm in favor i'm in favor of goofy dice and my favorite <laughs> type of die is the d12 so uh you know i'm definitely in the in the same boat there definitely an underrated die it is it's the best die ever the d12 and it just fell out of use well have you played savage worlds yes now talk about an elegant concept there when i saw that whole thing with the uh when you you know roll your max hit dice then you roll another one the the way that the math works out with that whole system puzzled me for days because i'm not strong on math you're not strong on math but you decided to wade through all of the older versions of DD and aggregate them into a system reference document twice well yeah because somebody had already done the math Ah, I suppose. Okay. Okay. You had mentioned earlier the the armor class that, you know, with third edition, that's where you first see the the ascending armor class because that's intuitive. And, and I agree. I just think that, that ascending makes more sense. In this case, that's that's another example of where you put both rule sets into the book for, for people to use, right? Yes, and that's and that's true. And that was that was an accessibility to uh, more modern players issue, which I sh- should have mentioned when I was talking about some of the objectives of writing it. What it was clarity, codification, but also accessibility to people who had started playing in later time periods than the people who were, you know, the majority of the grognards. But, you know, we were trying to express, you know, not, it wasn't so much that this is about a specific set of rules, you know, the original d rules. It was that this represents a particular style of play that's not being captured in the more modern games and trying to express that to somebody who had never seen that kind of game played before, because it's, it's not something that you automatically get. I mean, I, I, I often talk about you, people having a light bulb go on when, you know, they're facing some sort of, you know, puzzle or something like that and looking at their character sheet to try and find out, you know, what numbers is it that governs this? And it's, it's not that it's what would you do? You know, what would you do if you were in that situation? You know, ignore the numbers. This is more of a a mental puzzle type of situation and that's not instantly clear. And so it's difficult when you are writing a rule book rather than teaching people at a table to get that across in writing. And so we, uh, you know, I tried as, as many tricks as I could and that one, you know, is one of the simpler ones. But, you know, I think there are probably a lot of people, you know, especially now with fifth edition, I think a lot of people probably if they saw a book that had descending armor class would have a pretty good chance of just waving their hand and writing that book off right there for that one reason. Whereas if you have the ascending armor class in there, then you have then you get past the the chance that somebody is just going to be like, well, this is silly. It's tradition bound. It doesn't have anything to say. I think I think you're right about that when you do see something 
something that's that foreign of a mechanic. Because I just remember when I started playing, I would hear people crack jokes about Thacko, and I had no idea what it was. Somebody had to explain to me, well, you know, it used to be that you know, Zero was the best armor class, and it's, well, how does that work? <laughs> how does that right. make any sense? You know, because third edition, the ascending armor class, it is more intuitive. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, as far as, uh, as character creation in Swords and Wizardry, the, the options that the players would have would be pretty familiar as well, as far as race and class, right? Yes. I mean, there are, there are nuances kind of almost across the board in things like that. You know, Gygax's approach to an elf, you know, you often get the complaint that, you know, an elf is just a human with pointy ears. And the way he wrote it, that wasn't the case. He, you know, elves had to have a magic user class attached to them. They were basically fighter magic users. And and for all of the, the non-human races, there was something about them that made them unique and it was hardwired into them. And that, that was abandoned later on because people who were playing elves wanted to have more options for what they could do with the class. But of course, anytime that you give everybody all the options, you have eliminated the the essential differences between, you know, you are a dwarf. This is, you know, dwarves are in the D&D rules, you know, dwarves are um, very resistant to magic. They are, you know, they're, they're tending toward being fighters. As on the other hand, you know, elves are inherently magical. They have these, you know, they, they cast spells, they must, you know, they have that skill in it. And so that, so th- that's something that is, I think, a somewhat significant difference between the very early D&D, you know, of swords and wizardry and of basic expert and where it is now, which is that you sort of decide you're an elf, that you want to be an elf, you get some very minor changes, you know, usually to attributes, but then you've got all of the choices that you want to from there. So there's not really a whole lot of significant difference between being an elf or a dwarf or a human, whereas in the earlier editions, the differences were so much so that people decided that they were constraining. But does that appear here in in swords and wizardry? I didn't see, maybe I, I missed it, but I didn't see anything as far as the, you know, race as class system or anything like that is that built in it's not a race as class system in swords and wizardry complete however it does have level limits that cause you to have to multi-class and it's there but it's not as clear as it is in basic expert put it that way but it's very channeled in terms of what you can do with the different character races okay and, and we had the the sort of regular races the humans elves halflings dwarves i believe you had half elves in there as well mm-hmm. and then the usual sort of class set are, were assassins a, a an original they must have been otherwise you wouldn't have included them right they came in with the uh, supplement to Blackmore they were one of Dave Arneson's inventions that came in with it and I, there's a lot of controversy about whether there should be an insta kill or not with the assassins because it was written that way but the insta kill table that was used in first edition D&D was actually the success rate for a hired assassin which is, are two very different things in terms of the way that it was written I think the assassin's actually a pretty crappy character class in OD&D but it's it's there because it was there so <laughs> and so the the success rate of a hired assassin so that would have been for if your npc was able to take out another npc for you is yeah. that the idea yeah it was in the it was in the section on the section on hirelings was where that appeared and it was that you know if you sent your assassin out you know here was the chance of successfully you know of getting a successful result with your hired assassin and that morphed into becoming the insta kill table and so i don't know whether that was that uh, dave had one thing in mind and then gary you know didn't understand the distinction and put it in straight as it was or or how exactly 
that worked. But my my theory is that the assassin, as written for OD&D, is basically a uh, you give up thieving skills in return for the ability to use a shield and to use poison on your weapons, and that's it, which is a lame trade-off. So. And so at some point, it did get printed where the assassin class, after Arneson had invented it, somewhere Gygax printed it as having this insta-kill feature. Yes, that was in the first edition, and, and, and that's very early on that that shows up. I mean, that's in the first edition player's handbook that the assassin has that insta-kill chance. But by then, you know, Gygax had already taken over from Arneson in terms of, of handling that character class. It shows up the other way in the Blackmore supplement to original D&D. And then the, the insta-kill function has been around, uh, you know, since that time. And it's not necessarily a bad idea. I mean, I think, you know, you, you get to high levels and that, that can become a, a real unbalancing feature, but there's nothing inherently bad about it. I'm just saying that I don't think it was originally intended to be that way. Okay, but that's still an interesting insight there that either it was not understood or or Gygax just thought it was better that the I mean they are assassins I guess they should in theory be able, be able to kill, to kill. Someone, yeah <laughs> I mean it makes sense <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, so we're again we're aggregating from all of the different supplements. Was there anything that you left out from any of those supplements? Anything important that you feel you left out from those supplements or chose to leave out? Yes, I had to leave out the illusionist because the way that the illusionist was written in the original article in this, I think it was the Strategic Review, not the Dragon. It was very different from what had made its way into third edition and into the SRD, and it was very very flavorful. And if I had put that into Swords and Wizardry, my feeling was that it would probably involve a copyright violation. And so I, I didn't put that one in there. Most, you know, something like the Ranger, I mean, for the Ranger, the DNA of the Ranger concept follows all the way through into third edition, makes its way into this into the system reference document, and therefore it can be used in a retro clone. And, and people will know what you're talking about when you use this stuff. But the original version of the illusionist that was done in that periodical was very, very different from where the, the concept of illusion magic had gotten to with third edition because by then it was a sub it was just a subclass of magic there wasn't anything more unusual about an illusionist than there would be about somebody who was using evocation magic or a thaumaturgist or a necromancer or something like that they were all subclasses of it whereas the initial illusionist was written very differently and so that would have involved a copyright violation and so i had to leave that out interesting because obviously there are illusionists in in third edition so they're in the ogl but as a subclass as you said okay can you compare and contrast a little bit what what the differences were do you recall what um made it so unique from that original article? Uh, you know, it was the spell names were different than anything that had gotten into third edition. I, I think what happened was what was written by whoever wrote that magazine article was considerably adapted by TSR for it to make its way into the first edition player's handbook. And it was the first edition player's handbook that is the real DNA for th- for third edition. Uh, it's not the original D&D box set. So what you what you see in, in original D&D occasionally is what people who study evolution refer to as hopeful monsters, which is when you get a, a weird mutation and, they, and it just tries itself out and sees if it survives. And you've got some of those things in original D&D and therefore also in Swords and Wizardry that are concepts that either didn't end up going mainstream or, you know, in some cases, I think they were just flawed. Uh, like the Assassin, I think is, you know, if, if I were writing my own game, I would rewrite the Assassin class differently. Some Somehow. Don't know how. Okay. Y- you'd made a, a comment there that the first edition rules were the DNA for third edition. Does that DNA carry through second edition or do you feel that they, they, w- they were going back to first edition when they made third edition? 
No, I think that uh, you've got you've got first edition. I mean, they're they're all very different in different ways, but the first first edition is pretty well replicated in second edition. They're, those two games are very similar, and then third edition sort of takes all of the house rules that everybody had and makes them work together in an elegant fashion, which I don't like. But so that's <laughs> uh, but that's third edition, and then fourth edition goes off into an entirely different concept of game design. It's a real aberration, I think, and then. And fifth edition, what fifth edition does is it goes back all the way toward the first and second edition areas in 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 the sense that it it avoids the heavy granularity that third edition had and gets much more old school in the way that it approaches the game and it, it feels like it has a, a strong desire for for playability which is why they do those they have such simple mechanics as the advantage disadvantage and things like that in fifth yeah edition. i mean if people were you know obviously able to play third edition just fine but I, I do think that they realized that the game would be more playable if you simplified the number of different variables you don't want to have 10 different modifiers being added to a, a die roll every single time that you make a die roll something simpler than that would work better so yeah, I, I do think there was a focus on play. I don't think that the difficulty in playability had really become clear to anybody until third edition had been out for a while. And you began having people like me, you know, respond to it, you know, by saying, hey, something's wrong here with these rules. And so that response to the rules, was that was that before or after 3.5 came out? It was probably after because I had 3.5 books, so we were playing 3.5. To me, I didn't perceive the difference between the two very much. All right, so so back to, to Swords and Wizardry, though. So again, the, the race and class system, that's something that's going to be very familiar for a lot of players. As far as advancement or level progression, those sorts of things, we obviously have the, the sort of lengthy XP tables that we see. Uh, do we have rules in there, too, for the sort of hand wave while you're, you're at a, a milestone like they do in 5th edition? Not explicitly, no. I, I think I may have mentioned that actually I probably did insert myself as the author into the rules at some point in there about that because I'm really big on the idea because the core mechanic of, of XP in the original games was that a gold piece is equal to an experience point and you also got X XP for killing monsters but the thing was that you know gold was the ultimate objective to the thing for measuring how you were doing so if you could think your way around the monsters you had just as much right to the experience as otherwise. And so that was, again, one of my objections with third edition was that that was downplayed and you just got experience for killing monsters and nothing for outthinking them, you know, and getting around them and getting to something unless you had, you know, defeated them. But the downside is that if you have got, you know, some impoverished peasants who would like you to go kill a wolf and neither the peasants nor the wolf has any gold pieces, then you may find yourself deciding not to do that. And so I use mission bonuses a lot for the advancement when something like that happens. And I, I My guess is I probably did pop in in a side box or something like that and describe that as one of the ways that you can get experience. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I wrote it. <laughs> okay. So you said it was it was a gold piece equals an experience point. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so the the actual, the, your XP is also a measurement of your character's wealth? Not quite because you did get experience for killing monsters. It was just that it was way, way less than you would accumulate from the kinds of treasure that you would, you know, if you kill a, an orc and you look on the table, you're going to get such and such many gold pieces in the treasure trove and such and such many for killing the actual orc and the killing the actual orc orc experience points were pretty low but there was a bunch of gold that you would get so you it was it was heavily weighted toward the idea that if you managed to get the reward that it didn't matter how you 
did it. Again, this is sort of the the mental game of things. You know, if you were able to talk the orc away and go in and steal the gold, then you know you got the the experience points for that gold. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it mapped it mapped pretty closely onto it. Okay, and so when in your play, you use you said mission bonuses, but you're not sure if that made it into the into the rules exactly. Yeah, I can't remember experience point awards, mission bonuses. You know, however people think of it, but basically just a you know a, a lump grant of you know you've you you did the thing really well, so you get X number of experience points without me looking at you know anything in tables or rules or anything like that. That's just where we are, kind of a thing. All right. So in your own play, I guess with this with this game, did you have to play test it much? I mean, working with uh, the source material that you were, did you go through a, pl- a lengthy play test process or no? Virtually not at all. What we did do, however, um, was have a lot of people read it to make sure it was accurate. Because again, the objective here was to duplicate the original game. And so we and we weren't trying to fix anything. You know, there wasn't anywhere where, where I was going to insert myself and say, you know, I'm putting in a change here. So the playtesting had been done since 1974. It had been playtested more than any other role-playing game. <laughs> but what we did do, though, was the, the issue was the question of, have I written this in such a way that it accurately portrays what those original rules were? And so we had a lot of people going through and trying to figure out whether it was a correct description of the game that had been playtested since 1974. Okay. And so how did you accomplish that? I mean, obviously, I assume the people at Frog God were reading it along with you. Mm-hmm. Did you post it somewhere? Did you send it out to trusted individuals? What, what? Just the trusted individual thing. I mean, I've, there were a lot of people, you know, on you know forums. There are whole forums dedicated to OD&D. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard to find people to look at it. It was often, you know, I often knew when there was something that I was having difficulty conveying. I mean, I sort of knew where the problem areas were and was like, you know, hey, does this read right? You know, if not, how would you say it going through it that way? When you say difficulty conveying, is that uh, difficulty conveying without being in danger of a copyright infringement or difficult conveying because it wasn't clear in the original rules? Both, actually. I mean, there were a lot of, in fact, there are, there are several ambiguities in Swords and Wizardry that are there deliberately because there was an ambiguity in the original. And that was actually part of the thing was, you know, how artfully, you know, how can we reproduce an ambiguity in exactly the same way? Uh, so that, you know, that was interesting, but I really, I didn't, you know, if there was something that really wasn't clear, you know, what I did not want to do was to look at later editions of the rules and say, okay, this is where they eventually came down on this. What I wanted to do was to reproduce the actual ambiguity that people had and let them pick how it was that they wanted to treat that. And so a lot of those problem areas that I was talking about really were the question of, you know, hey, this is not entirely clear in the rules how this works. How do we leave that open? You know, how do we avoid the clear statement of it was often a question. Can you remember a specific example of an ambiguity that just had to be that you decided was was fine where it was? Uh, parrying, for example, it's not clear when a f- uh, only fighters can parry, and it's not clear whether they whether when they are parrying they can or cannot attack in that round. And so we left that in there. Now, sometimes, and, and, and I think what we did was in that case was to say, you, you know, it, it's not clear in the original rules. You decide. We didn't have an artful reproduced ambiguity that time around. I don't believe. Okay, and you actually came out and said it in the book. We're not sure on this one. Just do whatever you want. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was generally a saying of this is something that was not clear in the original rules, but it's either this or this. You can decide. And, and in many cases, I was like, you know, if you do it this way, you know, here's what you get. And if you do it this way, here's what you get. Okay. Uh, how do you handle parrying then and when you're actually playing? Uh, I break the rule and I give uh, half of the parry, but allow the uh, fighter to continue attacking while they're parrying. Okay. So with this project, you successfully recreated and for the first time, 
compiled OD&D. Is this something where since you finished, you found yourself playing a lot or was it mostly the labor of love to ensure the system was back out into the world? Oh, no, that's absolutely what I, what I still play from, you know, gaming. That's what I use. Okay. Is there anything in the game that you are most proud of, such as a rule that you were able to artfully convey or anything like that? Well, I think the thing I'm most proud of is really just the fact that it has gotten out there and people have been playing it. And I think a lot of people have realized the fact that there is you know, something very unique about original Dungeons and Dragons, because that was pretty much being forgotten. Because when they called third edition, third edition, that's starting with advanced D&D, which came after original D&D. So original D&D had already been relegated to zero edition at that point and was likely to be forgotten. I think a, a lot of people have, have realized that there's there really is something very very unique and cool about the original version of the game as it came out. And so that's really the thing that I'm the most proud of. Yeah. And obviously this contributed, as you mentioned earlier, to the greater OSR community. You got a big boost from people, kind of sort of a diaspora when, when there was a, a change in additions there. And you also have a lot of people building on Swords and Wizardry, possibly more than any other OSR out there, wouldn't you say? Probably so, yeah. I mean, it's it's spawned lots and lots and lots of little rule sets. You know, there's one called Woodland Warriors. There's one called Hulks and Horrors. Hulks and Horrors being sort of alien uh, Warhammer type of thing. Yeah, it's it's been used as the vehicle for creating lots and lots of, of games. Have you had a chance, I should ask, to play any of those variations that were built off of it? The only one that I have played was one called Ruins and Ronin. And that was, you know, basically your samurai movie type of version based on it. Other than that, I don't, I don't recall playing in any of the others, but I've, I've read a fair number of them. Okay. And I don't, if Frog God hasn't done any variations as far as a change in genre or anything like that, have they? No, no. Okay. But you do have some supplements out uh, for it as well? Yes, we've got, we just came out with the boxed set, which you and I are talking mid-March. This show's probably getting aired mid-April by then. I think people will either have the box sets or else will be really close because they, they are shipping from China pretty much as we speak. And so that box set version does have two supplements to it, one of which is called More Monsters and then the other one of which is a, a module called Baron's Gambit, an adventure module. But there's been, you know, we've also published a much larger book of monsters for swords and wizardry called Monstrosities, you know, tons and tons of adventures. But in terms of rule supplements, we are planning on coming out with some supplements, but in the sense of being optional rules. I mean, I've never done a second edition of Swords and Wizardry. I think that I don't think that adds anything to it, but I do think that optional rules are something that people enjoy. I just don't want to try and go back and have the the changed rule set in there. But yes, we are going to be coming out. We've got two supplements to the box set as well, and there are going to be more coming. And to your point throughout the conversation, I mean, the, the, the effort with Swords and Wizardry was to recreate OD&D. It's recreated. Anything in addendum to that is in addendum and kind of rightfully belongs in an additional book or supplement. Right. Okay. With some of those supplements, the adventures and the monsters, is it mostly trying to bring new adventures and ideas into an old system? Or are you ever recreating older adventures and modules to put back in publication? Uh, what is your creative process there? I mean, I'm always trying to stay within the type of play that I think that the OD&D Swords and Wizardry rules work with best. 
which is to say that it's a game that doesn't have lots of modifiers. It's using your brain and your imagination more than your character sheet for your ideas about what you're going to do. And that, you know, and I really do think that that is a, a particular style of play. And so I try, you know, we, we try and write the adventures to play toward the strengths of that system, because I do think that system matters. You know, there would be different scenarios where I would choose, you know, Savage Worlds as opposed to GURPS, as opposed to Call of Cthulhu. I, I do think that the game mechanisms work. And so there there is a particular play style that the Swords and Wizardry is particularly adapted to. And that's the kind of open-ended puzzle solving type of fantasy gaming, as opposed to the one that is, I've designed a character, let's see if he can survive, you know, based on the challenges that are thrown at him kind of approach. So When you're talking about the, the survival aspect, you're talking about a lot of the OSRs seem to, you know, they're looking for high lethality and you talk about the, the funnels in DCC. Is that what you mean would not be something that you would do really that Swords and Wizardry is designed for? No, I think I think in general, the games tend, the older games, including Swords and Wizardry, do tend to be more lethal in the sense of, you know, from a particular hit, you're going to be taking a larger percentage of what your likely hit points are. And there are, you know, reasons for that. What I was getting at was the idea that you are in later systems where you have lots of choices involved in your character design, you are spending a lot of time trying to come up with the kind of optimal combination of skills and abilities and also, you know, one character versus the character that another person has because if you both got two identical characters, then you're less flexible in terms of what you can do with it. It's simply less character sheet driven, the older style of gaming, I think. Okay. And you said that uh, it's it's really designed designed for for sort of the, the fantasy puzzle game. Is that what you feel that Gygax was going for with OD&D? Oh, yeah. Well, and, and again, people probably hadn't really conceived of the alternative of being something that had, you know, many, many modifiers and all of the possible tactical situations, you know, set out with the various modifiers, a large array of skills. It, it wasn't so much a choice as it was they came up with, you know, the more puzzle game first, you know, but he's definitely, he's, he's like, this is like the kids game of Cowboys and Indians, you know, that people used to play. You make it up as you go along. I and mean, now he loved puzzles. There's no question about that. That was one of the things he really enjoyed about the game was you're, you know, engaging, you know, your actual mind in terms of, you know, how am I going to deal with this problem that I'm presented with, you know, as opposed to, you know, you get the worst of, of a fifth edition approach of I'm just going to roll the dice and see whether my wisdom skill tells me that there's a thing over there. And then my intelligence, you know, investigation skill tells me what it is that it does. Boom. I roll the two dice. Tell me what the answer is, you know, which I think very few people actually play that way but it's it's definitely got the the groove built into the mechanics for somebody to think that that's what the rules mean whereas going back to Gygax's legacy you know it's, it's very clear that he what he enjoyed about the game was confronting people with puzzles and watching them work them out whether it was a tactical problem about how do we come in you know from behind to attack the dragon with a bonus or whether it was figuring out which combination of runes you need to put into place in order to go someplace that's safe as opposed to someplace horrible that's definitely something I think anyone would tell you is mad at Okay, and so do you have a specific example of sort of a puzzle scenario that you think plays out in Swords of Wizardry that would not be good for 5th edition or other modern games? Tomb of Horrors. You have to do tremendous changes to that in order for it to work in a way that a 5th edition player would find familiar or even okay, or even remotely okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
there are, uh, I'm, at this point in time, given how long the module has been out, I think I'm not giving anything away when I say that one of the, the most obvious way of simply going into the dungeon can kill you uh, if you do the wrong thing and you don't get a saving throw. Rocks fall, you die. That's, <laughs> I, that may even be where the whole rocks fall, you die thing comes from. It's from Tome of Horrors. Okay. And anybody who started playing on 5th edition, you know, reading the uh, Wizards of the Coast products is, is simply going to take a look at that and say, that's that's unfair. That's not what this game is about. Whereas, you know, at an earlier point in time, it was definitely what the game was about. That you were you had a, a problem, you, you figured it out, and there was a likelihood that if you got it wrong, you know, you were going to die, which at that point in time was okay because you didn't spend more than five minutes making a new character. So, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the reasons why the game has become less lethal over the years is directly linked to how long it takes to roll up a new character. That's an interesting insight. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I remember in third edition, we'd take an entire session to make characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd have to walk the the new players through it step by step. And Right, and then if you kill that character five minutes into the game, everyone's, you know, looking at you, you know, like, what the hell did you just do? <laughs> you know, that's not, how is this fun? But you change, you know, several things about it, including making the characters easier, easier to roll up, so on and so forth. And it does become okay, but it's a different type of game. And that's one of the things that I point out to people a lot is, you know, it's there's the same name on this stuff. You know, it's Dungeons and Dragons, then it's Dungeons and Dragons now, but there are a couple of distinct play styles inside that game that can be very different from each other. Absolutely. And I think even within the different editions, uh, you know, in fifth edition, everything, we, you've got different camps there. Like you said, there's always the factioning. There's always the oh yeah the battles going on between how is this game actually supposed to be played. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, I guess with Swords and Wizardry, I mean, it's been a tremendous success in the OSR community. Did you, when you first put it out, did you think it was going to be as successful as it has been and have as many variations to it? I mean, maybe not quite as successful as it has been, but, uh, you know, the real shock was with Austin. Osric. You know, like I said, we expected 10 or 12 people to download it on day one and it was 50,000. That was the real shock of learning what people's interests and desires were out there in the community. And then in terms of building something with a company around it, because one of the difficulties with Osric was that it was so decentralized and people do kind of like to have a company that's behind a thing. And that we had seen when Dan came out with Labyrinth Lord, you know, using a, a company, it was clearer that you, you got more cohesion in the group of people. It was easier to organize. And so I'd seen the success of that. So I did have a much better picture going into swords and wizardry as to what was going to happen once it was out than I had earlier on. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's become bigger, you know, probably than I would have thought, but it's within the realm of what I was hoping for is where it's come to. I guess I've never thought about people liking a company behind things. Is that because of the sort of, there's an authority telling us that, yes, this is how the game is supposed to be played when it comes to it? Or what do you think is the, the drive there? I, I really don't know. It was just the difference was stark between Osric, which was a decentralized fan base, base with, you know, no authority as opposed to labyrinth lord you know where dan had a company and it you know maybe it's that people are instinctively herd animals and uh you know i'm as guilty of that as anyone else when you look at my history of following from one rule set to another depending on which one was in print until i finally figured out that the problem you know that i was having a problem with the rules but i think there's something in human psychology that does like people to have a i mean it might not be an authority figure it might be a home base more than that i don't know but I do, I do definitely think that when a, that if you have a rule set that you're going to promote, I think you, the likelihood of it catching on will be higher if you have you know a single company that is the f- the figure behind the whole thing. And that's what what Frog God Games has given to Swords and Wizardry. Mm-hmm. And you said earlier that the project actually started before you joined Frog God, right? Yes, but I had a I did have a company called Mythmere Games that was doing it. Oh, I, mean, yes, the, okay. I think the first person to to test that you know was Dan Proctor with Labyrinth Lord. He had Goblinoid Games and he published Labyrinth Lord with it. And I think that he. You 
you know, he did very, very well. And I'm not, I don't mean financially. I mean, in terms of supporting the rule system and getting people, you know, what it was that they, that they wanted to get, keeping the community there, keeping the lines of communication open. I think he was the first person to have, have really done that. Excellent. Okay. All right. So, so you, you had Mythmir now, uh, is Mythmir considered part of Frog God or? No, it's still an independent company and it's out there. I just don't really do anything with it. But for example, if you go to drive through RPG and look up Mythmir games, you, that's how you get like the knock spell magazines that we, that I did or on lulu.com, but it's pretty much inactive at this point, but it's, uh, it's still independent because I didn't want to hand over control of the rules, you know, to a company basically. Cause I did, I, so I left the core swords and wizardry rules out of it. Okay. Uh, I also saw in there something, uncle Matt's RPG studio. Is that, is that also you or is that? that, yeah, that's also, that's also me. That, that was just from a point in time when I was running online games, I, I wanted to mess around on YouTube with running adventures using 3d printed scenery and doing the camera angle from the height of the miniatures going through it, almost like you you're walking through a diorama, you know, or, or you know, the, attach a camera to an ant and watch it go through the ant hill, kind of a thing. And so I, I did that, and I had a couple of products that, that were associated with that too. So yeah, that's also me. Okay, I guess it's interesting that you decided to, to put it under Uncle Matt's RPG Studio and not not Mythmir, but it said it's kind of a different a different venture there. Well, the thing was with, with Mythmir was that you know ages ago, it's it's just that was for some reason. I think it was the handle I picked in two thousand and two for the uh, Wizards of the Coast third edition forums or something like that. Or for some reason, I used that as my email address in there and it just kind of stuck. But the thing is that people either knew me as Mythmere or they knew me as Matt Finch. And some people were surprised to discover that that their two people were the same person. And so I tried to move a little bit more over to using you know the Matt Finch thing so that people would know you know who it was. Oh, so when you put out Osric, did you put it out as Mythmere then or... Well, Osric, I didn't put out at all. I mean, I, I, oh, right, right. I, I wrote it, but that didn't come out, you know, with any sort of company name or company ownership. And I think it's my regular name that's there. But at that point in time, you know, that was it was I was using it as my email address. And you know, I met somebody at GaryCon a couple of years ago, and it was hilarious because you know we we introduced ourselves by our names. And then he said, and I'm Handy Haversack. And I was like, oh my God, I'm Mythmere. And so it wasn't, it wasn't until you got to the second <laughs> level of the names that we actually knew who was talking to who. That was at Gary Con, you said, in Wisconsin? Yeah. Uh-huh. Excellent. As far as upcoming projects, you said that you have the, the box set shipping. That was, a, was that a Kickstarter, right? Yeah, that was a Kickstarter. And it's, it's been running late because we did the layout on it and looked at it. And it had been done the way that the original books were done. Or it was done with a, a single column format on digest size. And we decided we wanted to go to two columns, which necessitated relaying out the entire thing. But we figured it was worth it. But so that one's running late. But it will be you know either in people's hands or very, very close by mid-April when this show airs. I think right at the very moment we're talking, it's either in containers, but not yet loaded onto the ship or it's just been loaded onto the ship. So we still got the, the travel time, although that's kind of less than you would think. The ships apparently move fairly quickly once they're actually underway. So we don't have a, an exact date yet. We'll probably be pretty close to an exact date by the time people hear this. But the thing is, in the days of COVID, the fact that something arrives in the U.S., 
it can still get hung up in customs for quite a while. And we've actually got one book that will probably have been delivered by the time that this show airs. Our book of alchemy is has been hung up in customs for quite a while. We've had that happen before. And, and yet, on the other hand, sometimes something sails through. You just don't know. After the box sets and everything, are there any particular upcoming projects that listeners should keep an eye on? Anything that you are considering working on or anything like that? Let me see. Well, one of the things to keep an eye on, I think, in general, is our Indiegogo program. Frog God Games does Indiegogos relatively frequently for short adventures. And so I would say to go and look at that. I would also say, we and we do have a newsletter, which is probably the easiest way to keep track of, of what's coming out because we do stuff on Indiegogo. We do stuff on Kickstarter. We do a game day every once in a while. And so the, you know, the newsletter is probably the best way to keep track of that. We are going to be at some point coming out with a Kickstarter for a book that Necromancer Games published under the third edition rules that was written by Gary Gygax called Necropolis. And that one is going to be a very cool Kickstarter when that one comes out, but I don't have a date yet. Okay. And would Kickstarters be the best way for listeners to find your products or would you direct them somewhere else? Um, I usually direct people to our website, which is froggodgames.com, unless they're already more familiar with DriveThruRPG, in which case pretty much everything's on DriveThruRPG. Our website is improving. It used to be fairly chaotic in years gone by. I think it's a little bit easier to navigate at this point, but I, I think if people are interested in finding out the general scope of what it is we're doing at Frog God, it would probably be go to the, the Frog God Games website and then sign up for the newsletter. And then that you know the newsletter tends to put important information easily accessible without having to root around in there. Okay. And where can listeners go to find you? Well, I mean, I'm on Facebook. I'm probably on Twitter. I don't have a great answer for that in terms of where to find me. <laughs> I'm in Arizona. <laughs> okay. And listeners can sign up for that newsletter on the Frog God Games website? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. It was great talking to you, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, we'll definitely be looking out for uh, those future projects from Frog God Games. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Stephen. Thank you again, Matt, for stopping by the Guild Hall and sharing the story of how you helped to revive old-school gaming and set us on the path to the renaissance we are enjoying today. Swords and Wizardry provides new generations with an authentic blueprint for classic role-playing, so we believe that all listeners should stop by the Frog God Games website to download a free PDF of the complete rules or to order a physical copy and try playing the world's first tabletop role-playing game the way it was originally played. Before we go out of print, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Logo design for our show was done by Elijahnist. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast and Rikolas Weishaupt for their help in completing this episode. And thank you again to all our listeners around the world. If you are enjoying the show, we encourage you to rate and review DDG Pod on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please, keep spreading the word about our show. Your generous remarks across various internet platforms have not gone unnoticed. That concludes our third episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you old school fighters and retro magic users, we escaped again. 
But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky.